Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 3 and verse 1, as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 9 is our passage this morning. That passage can be found on page 858 if you are using a church Bible, page 858. Luke chapter 3 and verse 1, and before we look at the text, would you please join me in prayer? Father, we, th- we thank you for this time of worship that we can gather as a church family to do so, and as we turn to your word, God, we beg of you that, that by your grace and your mercy and your love for us that you would speak to us, and by the Holy Spirit, you would, you would show to us just how powerful your word really is to save and to change and to sanctify and to show us what it is that really matters in this life, would you give us by your grace a, a great joy and a deep love that can only be found in you? And would you show us the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, that, that more and more you might become everything to us? We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We come to a passage <clears throat> that describes the ministry of John the Baptist, the preacher in the wilderness. This is the man whom Jesus himself will speak of in Luke chapter 7, verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. John the Baptist is so integral to the gospel that Luke actually begins his account, and he opens his book not with the foretelling of the birth of Jesus, but with the foretelling of the birth of John, Jesus' forerunner. And he is conceived in a miraculous fashion to a barren elderly couple who could never have kids to show that his very life is undeniably a supernatural work. And the angel speaks of John prior to this conception that many will rejoice at his birth, that he will be great before the Lord, that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from the womb. And that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord. And he will turn many of the people's hearts towards each other. And that he will have the spirit and power of Elijah, this great prophet from of old. This is John the Baptist's description even before he breathed his very first breath. And his ministry is such that he's going to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus the Christ. But the last we heard of John is at the end of chapter 1, where he is hanging out in the wilderness, spending some time in the boonies. For he is to stay there until the day that he is to appear before the people of Israel. And it is in our text this morning that that day has finally arrived. The gospel of Jesus Christ, in one sense, begins with the preacher John, that he might prepare the people and awaken the nation for the coming of the Messiah. And the text before us describes what his ministry is like, and I think that there are quite a few lessons that we can learn. We read first in verse 1, the very context of John's ministry. And it says there, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Idurea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. We have here a list of names and rulers and governors and tetrarchs that mean little to nothing to us. But Luke is fixing John the Baptist's ministry in actual history. This is not make-believe. This is not fiction. The Bible is not a series of stories where the moral of the story is more important than the fact that it actually occurred. Now, the Bible is rooted in real events that can be traced to real time periods and located in real history. And this precise moment in history on first glance is neither the holiest moment nor is it the most hopeful for the people of God. Tiberius Caesar, emperor, third of 12 Caesars, had a reputation for being a very bad man, a very cruel man, self-absorbed, selfish, self-indulgent, and often very drunk. Pontius Pilate, politician of politicians, wicked and without a conscience, he would later order a guiltless Jesus to be crucified as he washed his hands of it, declaring his own innocence. Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, once called that fox by the Son of God himself in Luke 13, 32. Philip, another tetrarch, Herod's brother, because they like to keep power within the same family. And it is even in the priesthood where you'd least expect corruption. Even the high priesthood is illegally administered where two people retain influence and power and position. And surprise, surprise, they're related to each other as well. And the spiritual leadership is such that first century Judaism is a whitewashed shell of religion producing the very kinds of people who would not only reject the Son of God but want to see him murdered in the worst kind of way. This is a sad catalog of names. It's really a gallery of villains who would contribute to the death of John the Baptist and the death of Jesus Christ to kill both the forerunner and kill the Messiah himself. And it is into this darkened wasteland of a period of history that God decides to shine his beam of light. For the main event and the spotlight is not upon the world's rulers or upon the people in power. It is not even upon the key religious leaders of the day. But it is at the end of this dreadful list of heathen names that we read the main sentence loud and clear that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. This is the ray of hope. The word of God coming to his mouthpiece to prepare the people for the coming of the Christ is the main event. Who is in power is not the main event. Who determines the mandates? They are not the focus of God's history. We don't even know these names more than we know John the Baptist's name because the power brokers of this age and of our age are not the leading characters of God's decree. In fact, they're trivialized for it is at the time where most people would consider it hopeless that God brings the gospel into the world to somebody out there in the boonies. And this is a lesson for us. We cannot always calculate what God is going to do by trying to read the signs and interpret world events. I get random emails all the time claiming to be prophetic, trying to read the world more than they read the word of God. 
We cannot always calculate what God is going to do. For even here, it's not the prominent figures who are the focus. While the rulers are ruling and the leaders are leading and the tetrarchs are tetrarching, the word of God comes into the middle of the wilderness to a man who has stayed relatively hidden for the last 30 years and barely anyone saw it coming. And it is the word of God through the lips of his prophet which is going to prepare people for Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes we look at the world and think, oh, the nation this, and CRT that, and, and COVID this, and restrictions that, and our freedoms this, and big tech, yada, yada, yada. And we think, oh, it's over. It's hopeless. It's just too dark. The wrong people have too much power. The outlook of Christianity is not looking so hot. It looks like it's going to go downhill even further or even on the individual level. My marriage has become a little joyless. My singleness too tortuous. My kids have gone wayward. My friends are not as loyal as I once thought they were. My finances are drying up. My plans, they aren't coming to fruition. I find myself back at square one. My health, it's all hopeless with the subtitle, God can't do anything in a situation like this one. And yet it is in these very opening verses of Luke chapter 3, he shows to us that he in fact does. It is often in the moment when things appear to be at its bleakest that God brings about the very thing that the world needs, that you and I need the most, which is to be ready to receive the word of God and to welcome in Jesus Christ himself. Listen to J.C. Ryle. Let us learn never to despair about the cause of God's truth, however black and unfavorable its prospects may appear. At the very time when things seem hopeless, God may be preparing a mighty deliverance. At the very season when Satan's kingdom seems to be triumphing, the little stone cut without hands may be on the point of crushing it to pieces. The darkest hour of the night is often that which just precedes the day. History gives to us this very same principle. Massive persecution in the first century church. What did God do? He turned that to a missionary explosion. There's closed borders for China today, closed to Christian missionaries, and yet China from within becomes the fastest growing Christian nation in terms of sheer raw numbers. It's even within our own church family on the individual level. We have witnessed cancer diagnoses turn into conversions. Broken marriages become the arena by which people become saved. It is even at the cross of Jesus Christ, which looked like utter failure at the time. All his followers are scattering. That that loss is the very means by which our salvation is achieved. The darkest hour of the night is often that which just precedes the day. And here it is that the day has arrived for the long-awaited word of God has come to his mouthpiece in John the Baptist. And just like in creation where the world had been formless and void, when God speaks, things come into being, which is what is going to happen in our text this week and the next. To have a proper mindset in ministry is to understand where the word of God comes in importance and priority in relation to the world around us. This is the main thing. 
Everything else is just the stage and the setting and the context for the very main thing. And so world rulers, key figures, they're trivialized as just the trees and the stage and the background and the backdrop for the word of God going forth, which will begin a chain of events that will change the very course of world history forever. We continue in verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John the Baptist's message, the content of his preaching and the gist of his proclamation is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. These are his two themes, repentance and forgiveness, and they are intimately related to each other. And John declares to all who will listen, you must be baptized, you must be washed, not because sin is something external, something filthy on the outside that water can actually wash away, but you must be washed as a symbol of what is happening within you, that you know your filth is right here in your heart and that you are repenting for the way that you have lived your life. Now, what is repentance? It is to feel sorrow over sin and the desire to do it no more. It is a turning which is what the word repentance means. And in this context, it is a turning away from how you used to live your life and turning to an entirely new way of living. It is a confession that my life's direction was in the wrong way and I now want to live my life in the right way, which is God's way. And it is this kind of repentance which is a prerequisite for the forgiveness of sins for it is at the very heart and center of true repentance which exists a confession that I need to be forgiven. I need to be washed. I need to be changed. My filth is too deep. I can't blame anybody else. My sin spread is so wide that the whole of my being needs to be immersed in another cleansing me. And John the Baptist here falls in line with a long tradition of prophets from the Lord who call for radical repentance and major life change. And yet it is at the very same time that there is the offer to any and to all free and whole forgiveness. That even the worst sins and the most wicked mindsets and perverse patterns of living, even the things that we are most ashamed of, we can be forgiven. It is these two twin themes, repentance and forgiveness, that make up the content of John's preaching and the gist of his proclamation. But there is something even deeper at work here because John the Baptist's ministry does not originate at this point in time with John himself, but this precise ministry fulfills a more ancient prophecy written centuries earlier, about 700 years, proclaimed out of the mouth of Isaiah, who says, John is just a voice. This baptism is not the true baptism. True baptism is into union with Jesus Christ. John's baptism is a precursor to the true baptism. John the Baptist's entire ministry is preparation 
It's preparatory for the greater one to accomplish the real washing and offer the eternal forgiveness that can only be accomplished by his shed blood. It was often in ancient times that when a king would come to enter into a city, that to prepare the citizens for his welcome, he would send out a forerunner, a messenger in advance to make sure that those people were ready to receive him when he arrived. And his forerunner would get there early and open the scroll and herald the news of this king's coming. And that is exactly what is happening here. That the herald is announcing that the way we prepare ourselves for the entrance of the king and the Messiah and the Son of God and God himself is with deep and heartfelt repentance and with a bold trust and a believing faith in this announced forgiveness and the imagery within this prophecy is such that even, even whole mountains are leveled to the ground. And even the deepest valleys are, are being lifted up. That the most prideful, arrogant human beings can be broken down. And those who are wallowing in self-brokenness can be lifted up. Even the most crooked paths, they can be made straight. Even the roughest wastelands can be made clear. This is not about a construction company doing stuff to the land. These are pictures of the work within the human heart describing this kind of biblical repentance so that Jesus Christ could be welcomed in, so that the Lord can bring a salvation that is meant for all. For the last sentence of the prophecy cited by Luke says, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God, which is to say that no one is excluded, not by race, not by social standing, not by financial means, not by prison record, not by the skeletons in your closet. This salvation of God is global. It is for all people of all backgrounds. And there is no kind of person that this gospel cannot reach, nor boundary that this gospel cannot cross. For the forerunner declares as a voice crying out in their wilderness the very word God gave to him in that wilderness that the way you welcome this king is by confessing your need to be washed and by turning from your sinful ways and your God belittling, God ignoring lifestyle and turning to him instead for new life with the hope of full pardon and ultimate forgiveness. You get to have reconciliation with a God who designed you and made you to find your greatest joy in him. Now to clarify, repentance doesn't save you. You can feel guilty and resolve to be a better person all day, every day. Doing that doesn't erase a single one of your old sins. Repentance does not atone. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can atone and wash away any of our filth. But it is by repentance that we confess and mourn and forsake and hate the very sin that separated us from knowing and enjoying our God and saving faith in Jesus Christ and deep repentance are joined together in a salvation that is entirely by grace and grace alone. There is no forgiveness of sin without repentance from sin. The two are joined and they must not be torn asunder. And so John the Baptist's main preaching and proclamation ministry held before the people these twin and adjoined themes of repentance from sins and forgiveness of sins as visualized and represented by the washing in the baptismal waters to prepare the hearts of people 
for the coming of Jesus Christ, the true Savior and the true King. But it is in the next set of verses where we get to see the actual words that John chooses to use in this proclamation. We read in verse 7, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here we have the actual words that make up John's message. Now, this is not the most seeker-sensitive sermon. This is not the honey message to attract the bees. This is not adapting himself to the crowd's felt needs, but drawing their attention to their real need. This is not generally how church consultants out there tell you how to preach your way to a bigger church, to give off positive vibes and instruct on positive thinking and to make people feel really at home. Instead of saying, thank you for coming, we're so glad that you could join us in the wilderness. John opens with the words, you brood of vipers. Now, this doesn't mean that every sermon from every pulpit should have its its introduction, accusatory statements and vivid insults and long pointing fingers, nor does it mean that those guys with blood red signs that read, you're going to hell, as they march and chant with a smirk on their face and yell condescendingly, repent, almost as if they love the fact that people are perishing. John's preaching here does not justify any of that, but what John the Baptist has here, I think, is a keen insight into the hearts of the people in front of him and a deep understanding of the spiritual climate of this particular society. He knows that a new religious washing would draw quite a bit of religious people, especially to the wilderness, which would so often represent so many of God's movements. And John knows the emptiness of religiosity and the prevalence in his time of lip service and the multiplying of ceremonies and washings that were just these outward actions that could be accomplished by those who harbor the worst kinds of sins within their hearts. It is John seeing these crowds and loving these crowds who couldn't stand to let the people feel a false sense of security that they were spiritually all good because they are partaking in some kind of religious event. He will not comfort those who are in great danger, hence he gives to them the great warning, which is why I think John does go for the jugular. You brood of vipers, he opens with. Matthew Henry says the guilty, corrupted race of mankind is becoming a generation of vipers, not only poisoned, but poisonous, hateful to God and hating one another. Doesn't that sound like the world today? This address is meant to alarm. It is meant to awaken. It is a kind of cry that is designed to startle so that you would contemplate Is he talking about me? Satan is a serpent, a snake in Genesis 3. Am I part of his brood? Do I share the same nature? Am I locked into his grip? John's banging the gong so that we would listen up. And then he launches into the stark reality of a coming judgment. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
Make no mistake that God and creator of all things does not take sin lightly at all. And therefore, God's spokesman does not take sin lightly either. There is literally a hell to pay for a people who disregard God as if he were not God and belittle him as, as something tertiary, which means that if you're not right with him, this warning is aimed squarely at you. But every warning, no matter how harsh it may sound, is a gift of grace and a token of mercy so that we would respond to it well. I can't remember where I read it, that the road to heaven is lined with warnings of hell. The warnings keep us on the right path. God's preacher is not ashamed to talk about hell or the coming judgment or the reality of the deserved wrath of God against a humanity who refuses to worship him, let alone acknowledge him that they prefer to worship created things rather than the creator of all things. But John doesn't stop there. He gives the crowd a way to respond. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He doesn't merely say to this crowd, repent, but he makes it clear what he is asking. Repentance is not merely about what comes off of your lips, but what comes out of your life. We can often fool ourselves by saying the right things even when we are living the wrong way. And John understands that the religious Jewish crowd in front of him knows how to say the right thing and nod their heads at the right part and say, mm, and amen at the right times. And John is saying, well, what about your life? An apple tree's job is to bear apples. Its fruit tells you that it's an apple tree. If there's a tree claiming to be an apple tree and there ain't no apples in season, it's not an apple tree. And if a person talks about repentance and says the right things, but their life is pretty much identical to what it was before in aim and in function and in selfishness and self-centeredness, then that person is not repentant. John the Baptist here is very comfortable being confrontational with the people he is addressing in their actual living because he knows that the Messiah and the King, he is coming, and we don't want to waste a moment fooling ourselves into thinking we are ready for him when we are not. But John the Baptist doesn't end his preaching right there. He also addresses potential objections. He says, next, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What a lot of religious people held on to was their religious heritage. My mom, my dad, they're believers, my grandma, my grandpa. I mean, you could trace me all the way back to Abraham, and God made a promise to Abraham, and therefore, by relation to him, I'm bulletproof. My lineage, my race, my heritage, my family's tradition, that secures me into God's kingdom. And John says, look at those rocks right there. God can make children of Abraham from them. Your ancestry means nothing if you're not a repentant person. Your Jewishness means nothing in terms of preparing for the Messiah. You can't rely and hang on Abraham's coattails if you are unrepentant yourself. And it's the same for us today. Your daddy can be a pastor. Your mom can be a prayer warrior. Grandma, grandpa can be missionaries. But if you are unrepentant, and if your life remains unchanged, then you are in danger 
John's message is clearly, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile, if you will not repent, you will perish. If you only repent with your mouth and not with your life, you will perish. If you rest on your parents' Christianity and have no faith of your own, you will perish. If you rely on your familiarity with the church, your head knowledge of all the stories, how you grew up at VBS and know the lyrics to all the songs and have a bunch of Christian friends and yet you have not turned away from your sin, you will perish. What John is doing is taking all the legs out from under them so that the crowd will fall flat onto their faces and feel the desperation of their condition before the coming king. John Piper writes, this in relation to our text. Repentance is turning away from any and all reliance upon what I am by birth, like Jewish or Gentile, or what I have done by my own effort, and turning to the absolutely free mercy of God for the hope of salvation. Mercy, by its very nature, cannot be constrained or obligated by human distinctives or efforts. Repentance, therefore, is the altering of what we rely on in life, what we hope in, what we are counting on for salvation in the age to come and for help now. The repentance that leads to forgiveness of sins is turning away from what we are by birth or achieved by effort to rely wholly on mercy, God's free and sovereign grace. And there's a life that is the outpouring of that kind of repentance that we'll look at Next Sunday, God willing. But John the Baptist is bold, especially to this crowd. And he wants to take away all of their excuses not to repent. He wants them to look within themselves. And he is willing to sound the gong and speak a little bit louder and a little bit bolder and make his words a little bit sharper when there's religious wax all up in their ears. He is unconcerned with popularity or his online presence or his brand or his influence on the secular realm because he is concerned with the souls of his hearers so that he unapologetically preaches to them the word of God received by himself first but given to you that they might prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ. And as we come to the Lord's table on the second Sunday of the month, we have this visual of what John the Baptist had been preparing the crowds for. When the herald says the king's coming, you better repent. We would expect this conquering king to come with a sword drawn, ready to judge at that very moment. And yet the table shows to us how the Son of God came the first time, touching lepers, healing the broken, making blind eyes see, making the deaf to hear, suffering, not knowing where he was going to sleep. We have not a conquering king first, but a suffering servant. And he says, all my body is for you. All my blood is shed to wash away the sin that you hate. But you must eat and drink of me. And you must be repentant that I'm tired of living my way. I don't want to live for myself. I want to live for Christ. I want to live his way. And I know that it takes all of him to save me, which is why I eat of his body and drink of his blood. He must wash me clean. He must give me new life. He must be the one to forgive my iniquity. 
He is my highest joy. And the goal of my life is to know him and enjoy him and glorify him forevermore. As we eat, this is the Son of God offering himself to you because he wants to be united with a people like us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel and your word and that you are a God who tells it to us straight because you love us. That you are a God who not only opens our eyes to the filth within us, but opens our eyes to Jesus Christ, the remover of all that filth. I pray, God, that you would give us the right perspective and eyes to see and ears to hear that we might know what really matters in this life. I pray that you give us a deep, deep joy in Jesus Christ, whose face will make everything of the earth look strangely dim. I pray that you help us experience more and more the depth of love that you have for us, that everything else looks weak in comparison. Would you make us a church family that is so bold for you and unashamed that you would bring people to yourself and turn people in reconciliation towards each other. We ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.